This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to look at the um, additions of the 49th and 50th states into the Union, some of the backgrounds on how it happened, um, why it took place, why it took so long uh, to get put into the Union, and really just like all like the backdoor negotiations and the process of becoming a state, because it's not as easy as simply saying, hey, guess what? You're a state now. There's a lot more that, go, that goes into it. Yeah, a lot of politics, divisive politics sometimes even. Um, yes, but- um, yeah, the last two states. I don't even know how we came up with this topic. <laughs> I think it was like, oh, let's do Hawaii. But we should do Alaska. Well, we should do Hawaii and Alaska. I mean, they both technically became states in 59 within months of each other. So Yeah, and they were kind of tied together as we'll get into. Yeah. Like there was kind of a compromise. And, and plus a flag with 49 stars would look weird. I didn't even think one with 48 kind of looked weird, right? Right, yeah. I, agree. I don't remember ever. I mean, in our time, if our lifetime, we've never known anything other than the 50. Nope. Yep, you're right. But obviously, obviously, you know, and others, it was much different. And there's always talk of, you know, some other states being added at at some point, you know, D.C., Puerto Rico. It seems like it's such a, you know, like a a controversial topic today. People are like, oh, should Puerto Rico be added as a state? And, you know, some people are like, no, it shouldn't. And I think there was a lot of controversy with these two as well, because they were for the longest time, they were territories. And, And we'll talk about today as to how we wind up acquiring these territories and kind of brief history as to what Alaska was before we got there and how we came to have it. And same thing with Hawaii. And then ultimately, we'll talk about its its road to statehood for both of them, rather. So I think uh, let's get uh, let's get it started. Let's get started on Alaska. And the reason for that is because that one became the state first. So yeah, it's a 49th a state. Yep. So well, just basically, idea. I mean, there's a lot that goes in with Alaska, but um, it was really just considered a military uh, district of the United States, right? And the yeah, federal government the controlled time. it the, under the Department of Alaska. And um, then it became designated as the District of Alaska, I think, from 1912 up until it became a state. And it really um, was a place where you had a lot of, like, if you had the gold rush going on there. And it became looked at as almost like a colonial economy at one point because of all, like, the... Um, industry that popped up to support their growing population that was going there to attempt to get rich. So you had a lot of like fur trades, fishing, trapping, mining, mineral production. It really started to, and there were acts before this, which we'll get into about wanting it to become a state uh, prior to this, but really not until after World War II when it became kind of seen that we kind of should make Alaska a state because of its proximity to the Soviet Union. And it's going to be really important during the Cold War. That's really, I think, something that, um, can't be forgotten here. It's really pushed yep. for Alaska to become a state, as uh, Sarah Palin says. She, you know, she can see the Russians <laughs> from her backyard. Yeah, even though it's, I mean, technically, the Barents Strait is, I think, fifty something odd miles. So I, I, yeah, she can't see it, but it is fairly close. No, and, no, it's close. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's awesome also to bring it up since you're saying, you know, Soviet Union and the proximity of the Soviet Union. I think that's actually a perfect segue to get into some of its early history, which is the sheer fact that for the longest time. Alaska was really very much a territory or a colony of Russia. Russia. You know, yeah, people yeah. people forget that. And technically speaking, if you think of the sheer size of Alaska, it is like one third of the entire continental United States. So when I say that it was the colony of the Russians, the, I mean, they didn't technically own all of it, or even if they claimed they did, it's not like they really explored all of it. However, no. 
yeah, the, the premise here is that it, Alaska, as as we know it, its road to becoming ours really kind of starts, let's say, 16, 1700s. Um, in 1728, you have an expedition that's commissioned by Tsar Peter I, or the Peter the Great of Russia, and it is led by a Danish um, guy. His name was um, Bering, hence the name Bering Strait. He winds up going and trying to find a route from you know Eastern Russia through to North America. And he does find it, right? He finds it in Alaska. And he determines that the new land is not linked to the Russian mainland. But, you know, initially he kind of fails to find it. Then he winds up finding it. And the yeah, one thing that's really... For, for beaver fur, right? Like that exactly. Like, uh, and sea otters. Sea otter fur. Yeah, sea, sea otter was the big one. It was supposed to be like the best fur because it was like water resistant. Yep. So what does happen though, so he comes back and basically with all these otter fur and he's like, you know, here we go. Deal, yeah. And this becomes basically like they said that it was akin to akin to a like a gold rush, really, for the Russians. Um, that you know, when I think of gold rush, everyone rushes to California, and boom, major migration boom. That's what happened here. So many Russians rushed over to Alaska because of this otter fur economy, I guess, right? And they settled mostly um, Russians at Three Saints Bay near President Kodiak, uh, fur traders. Um, I mean, there's locals there, obviously, as well. So you have a lot of fights with the locals. But what, what ultimately starts to happen is these hunting of these fur seals kind of makes them extinct. That becomes like a kind of a big deal. Yeah, um, and it was never, um, like you said before, they never fully colonized Alaska. It was never very profitable for them. Yeah, they just yeah, stayed on the They didn't make much money of it. But there's still some evidence of the Russian settlement today, particularly in like um, some churches that survived throughout mm-hmm. uh, southern eastern parts of Alaska. So you see some of the names and stuff like that. But it was never very – they never made a lot of money. Then William H. Stewart, um, who is the Secretary Stewart, of State, yeah. yeah, he's the one that starts to negotiate this Alaska purchase. Russia wants to sell it for two reasons. One, the sea otter population is almost extinct, which means it's no longer profitable for the Russians to be in Alaska. Also, it is extremely difficult to get food to Alaska because it's so far from like St. Petersburg and all that stuff. So people that are going, you know, the eight it was about 800 Russian settlers. And then it dwindled by like mid 1800s to like 200 Russian settlers because it's kind of difficult to live there. And because the yeah. extinction of sea otters was no longer making it profitable, the you know Russian czar is like, uh, this is kind of becoming expensive. And he's also fighting the Crimean War between 1853 and 56, which is costing them so much money fighting against France and England uh, in the Middle East. So Russia's kind of looking for like a, a quick buck, right? And that's where buck, William yeah. Seward comes into play. Yeah. And this is like a theme that you see a lot in history, like where one power, let's say, is fighting a war somewhere else. They need to make some money. So I'm going to sell off some land. You know, like, and the United States the US, is always there for it. <laughs> in the United States, especially if it's in the you know Western Hemisphere, like oh, we'll take it. You know, <laughs> and it's actually originally known as Stewart's Folly because they kind of uh, saying, "Why would you buy this hunk of land? Like, well, why do you yeah. want this?" You know, yeah. um, but it winds up happening. Um, they lowered a flag on uh, Fort uh, Sitka on October eighteenth, eighteen sixty-seven. They raised the uh, American, they raised the uh, U.S. flag there, and it, it's celebrated as Alaska Day, which is actually a legal holiday of the uh, October eighteenth. Alaska. It was loosely, like we talked about what we were talking about before, it was loosely governed. Um, it was it had like some districts and stuff like that. It was a governor appointed by the by the U.S. president. They had a district court. They had marshals and stuff like that. Uh, but for most of its first time, um, the community was really just inhabited by a few American settlers. And it was like provisional city government. But for the most part, it wasn't really um, like a legal government in the sense that we have today. And they kind of just let the communities do what they want. 
up until yeah. like it became like limited statehood and stuff like that. But that's why there was a lot of opposition from locals even ever becoming a state because they just wanted like to just self-govern themselves for the most part. Yep. And also like it, during this entire time, first of all, while it's trying to become, you know, some form of a district in a sense in 1906, Alaska's first representative sent to Congress, but they're not allowed to vote. Then in 1912, Congress establishes an official territory of Alaska, and there is an elected legislator there. But again, it's not a state, so it can't bring senators into Congress. It's kind of just a territory that's there. And for the longest time, it's really known as, you know, as you said, Seward's Folly, but also like a Seward's Icebox. Like you just bought, bought this area that's just, you know, full of ice. Like there's nothing there. But then things start to change. And, and specifically, the first real thing here is the gold discovery, which is actually not necessarily discovered in Alaska. It's initially first discovered in 1860s, uh, 1880s, really, um, in Canada, right? But it's on a border of Canada and Alaska. And that's what brings a lot of people like, wait, if it's in Canada, right, it might be here too. So it brings so many people to Yukon Territory, um, you know, basically territories that, that are next to British Columbia. And it really leads to the development of Alaska, specifically towns of Skagway, um, you know, that's like jumping off points to Canadian sites. It's like, well, we could go there, which is America, and we could just quickly hop over to Canada, get what we want if we find any gold, and then get back. Um, but then eventually what ends up happening is they do find... Uh, a little bit of gold in, in um, Alaska, rather. But again, this gold rush makes Americans aware that there's other economic potential in this neglected land. Same thing that happened in California, right? They're like, wait, yes. we could, yeah. f- there's fishing, uh, right? They start getting coppers discovered. That's um, a big thing, yeah. That's how Mor- yeah, uh, JP right. Morgan gets involved because yep. of the copper mines, yeah. So all of a sudden it becomes profitable. You know, in the late 1800s, uh, Alaska becomes profitable for the United States. And besides the fishing, uh, the fur trade kind of continues again a little bit. You have the copper, uh, other natural materials, raw materials. You have gold. Um, I mean, it's not. And this is before that we even discovered the fact that Alaska is also sitting on a, a crap loads of oil, which is a whole another issue there. But there's a railroad that's being built here around 1900. Uh, Americans are rediscovering Alaska, very much so how they discovered um, California 50 years prior. And I think that's... And there's a lot of these, um, the second, the first organic act, I guess we talked about before, that happened in 1884, now happens shortly after this other one in 1912, is the um, second organic act. And the big thing that what this does is it basically, again, it's slowly paving that way... Um, road to statehood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it puts the uh, um, the capital at Juneau. They have an elected legislator. And one of the people that's really pushing this is a man by the name of uh, James Wickersham. He's really pushing this. And he's basically a um, Alaskan um, judge. And he's mm-hmm. pressuring McKinley and then later presidents too to try to make Alaska a state. He's just saying like, this, this is going to be beneficial for everyone if Alaska becomes a state. And the bill actually does get brought to Congress in 1916, but it fails mostly because they feel that there's lack of interest among actual Alaskans to mm-hmm. gaining statehood. And that's a, an, an obstacle that later generations are going to do to try to finally get this is to prove, no, no, um, Alaskans want to be part of the United States and they're going to prove it. And that's what that was something that comes a little bit later on, I guess we'll talk about. Yeah. And I think that's also a nice segue as well to not to World War II. I mean, you know, World War II kind of pushes a lot of people that were iffy about whether we should take Alaska in as a state, um, kind of like as a matter of, of national security and pride a little bit, right? Because in 1942, Japanese forces actually invade um, certain islands, right? In, the Aleutian Islands. The Aleutian Islands, right? In, uh, in Alaska. And this kind of 
prompted the United States construction of large airfields in Alaska because they're like, all right, we got to get a military in there because the Japanese are actually trying to take over. And this is American land. So therefore, there's a certain level of pride here um, that these guys are taking over American territory. Because of that, um, the United States starts to look at at Alaska as, as a way of almost like, well, you know, we should defend this area. And, and it kind of brings us to what you said before with Soviet Union, which is the fact that this is the closest landmass that we have to our biggest enemy throughout the Cold War, which was the Soviet Union, um, which starts shortly thereafter World War II. Um, That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So Alaskans are kind of like, well, you know what? Uh, we were invaded before, the local Alaskans. Like, we were invaded before by the Japanese, and Americans came and helped out. But now we may be invaded by... The Soviets, it's like, uh-oh, like we don't want to deal if with anything invasions. happens, that's where this definitely just going to get invaded. Like they know that they're going to be like. And now they're like, yeah, maybe statehood's not a bad idea. Well, there's there's just a voting, and so they, they want to prove that they want it, that they want. And yeah. there's um, so what's going on is there is a the Alaskan Statehood Committee is created in 1949 mm-hmm. by a man by the name of um, Grueling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And what he's doing is he's encouraging journalists, newspaper politicians. Labor Party members, even some like movie stars, um, to basically um, encourage and and um, Eleanor Roosevelt's one of these people, and this that are trying to push for Alaskan statehood. And it was re- um, introduced to Congress in 1949. It was passed by the House by a 186 to 146 vote. However, it was then shot down again in the Senate, and there was fear from like older Republicans. That um, they were they were going to lose seats to Democrats if this happened because Alaska was feared to come in as a democratic state. Um, so to, again, in 1952, it was also put in. Actually, lost by a one vote margin, 45 to 44, killed uh, the statehood for another year. And then the Southern Democrats starting to threaten the filibuster to like consideration. In 1954, Student Union Eisenhower talked about Hawaii becoming, which was a Republican leading territory about mm-hmm. possibly becoming a state, but he never mentioned Alaska. So that's when a lot of these uh, individuals like uh, Grueling comes like, listen, we got to do this. So he uh, was frustrated by Eisenhower's refusal to support Alaskan statehood. So he led a bunch of coalitions basically, and they would go around all the time and just um, like constantly harass these people who voted against it and be like, why are you voting against Alaska? What do you have against Alaska? How come we don't want Alaska to be a state? And they're just like, what's going on here? This is actually, technically it was something legal. You're not supposed to do that. And basically harassing them. And um, he also starts to increase members, uh, um, increase the proof that the Alaskans want a statehood. And he holds public hearings for themselves to you know, basically say public sentiments. Um, and uh, Alaska, actually, they sent their state flower, which is the forget-me-not. I'm sure people know what the forget-me-nots mm-hmm. are, right? Uh, members of Congress, don't forget about us and stuff like that. Uh, they said things that they sent out Christmas cards. The Make Alaskans Future Bright, ask your senator for statehood and start the new year right. Those were sent to um, like a lot of members of Congress. So this is slowly starting to gain more and more. This is like the mid-50s, starting to gain more and more. And what that does is it makes um, that Operation Statehood and all of that increasing of public interest, it destroyed that argument to say, oh, the Alaskans don't want to be a state. But that destroys it. They can't use that anymore. So it just destroyed that part of the argument and it can no longer be usable. So now, now what reasons are you saying that Alaska can't become a state if the people there want to become a state, which is yeah. obviously what it says to be. So that's just, it was kind of just a ploy to take that argument away from the people who, do not, who didn't want Alaska to become a state. 
Yeah, and it's also interesting too because once you have the discovery of oil in the late 50s, That's which actually the, the big discoveries really in the 60s when we discover how much oil is there, but the initial discoveries of natural gas and oil happened in the 50s. And that kind of goes against the image of like Alaska is going to burden the United States. It's going to be weak. It's going to be a dependent region. But now that you have natural gases discovered in the late 50s and the early discovery of oil, um, it kind of leads to the government to be like, uh, yeah, no, these guys are not going to be a dependent. You know, like they're going to help us out, um, which basically leads to, and I mean, long story short, uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs the Alaska Statehood Act into the United States law on uh, technically July 4th, 1958, right? And that paves the way for Alaska's official admission into the union, which happens on January 3rd, 1959, making Alaska the 49th state. You know what? I'm curious. Did they, for that little bit, for the next few months before Hawaii becomes a state, did they change any of the flags? Yeah, you did. There's a few. There's pictures like of four, ones. Uh, 49? Which some of them were like grueling like and Bartlett and some of the other big like people who really pushed for it to happen. So there's, there's some that only show 49 star, stars, but they pretty much knew Alaska was on, well, excuse me, Hawaii was on it, was on its way. Yeah. Because part of the provision they had to do to become statehood is they had to like say, well, you know, Alaska immediately is admitted to the union. That was part of it. They had to dismiss all any claims they had as a state now goes to the United States. He's like these provisions, you know, yeah. like grants the United States property or all the land and stuff like that. I mean, after that, you know, kind of Alaska's history becomes... And well, you you have obviously oil and natural gas become huge, right? So definitely add to oh, big time, yes, yeah. helps yeah, you know the United States pipeline stuff. Yeah, it's not a full yeah, six, like yeah, and yeah, nineteen sixty eight discovery of petroleum on land. Basically, Alaska's economy booms since then. At one point, also in the sixties, pulp industry was huge, where they basically started to utilize the forests and resources to make paper pulp mills to make paper which is huge. Eventually, they said there was logging restrictions. They stopped doing that in the 90s. But by then, petroleum had already taken over in oil. By 69, a group of petroleum companies paid the state nearly $1 billion in land revenues. Um, and that's when they were like, well, let's propose a pipeline, which eventually passes the bill. And the Trans-Alaska Pipeline is built in the 70s. Yeah, plus, you can also shows like Alaskan bush people and stuff like that. So, <laughs> of you know, course. You couldn't have um, it otherwise. Nuts. Uh, I mean, if you guys, if you study the history of Alaska, there's a lot in there. Obviously, the big one is, uh, and again, I'm not going to get into it because this could be a podcast in itself, but you have the oil tanker uh, Valdez, right? Which runs, of course, uh, causes the most disastrous oil spill in all of North American history. Um, Marine ecology, local economy damage, it's pretty intense. But I think maybe we could save that for another podcast. What do you think? Yeah. That's a good idea. Let's get let's get into Hawaii. So here's Alaska, guys. Started with Russians. That's Alaska. Yeah. So that's the end. Ended with the Russians, right? Ice cold, bears, gold, other stuff. Shoot over to the Pacific. Okay, it's a much different um, history. Yes. Right? With, 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 with Hawaii, it's a much different. Um... Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Not so, nice. not, not so nice. Not so nice. Yeah, it wasn't as so. Yeah, you didn't have to like convince people. Let's take it over. You kind of had to. They, they wanted to be there for a while, and the people there were like, "No, we have no real interest in being part of the United States." Yeah, and the United actually, States is like, "Yeah, we're gonna take it anyway." We're gonna take it, and um, you can 
it's definitely this is the whole age of imperialism right here, right? The whole idea yes. where Hawaii becomes a state. Um, but again, if you're looking, if you go ever go to Hawaii, they will they they're out they're in the front. Like when they talk about Hawaiian history, they tell you, listen, they, you know, there was no real desire by most Native Hawaiians, particularly the Queen at the time, to become part of the United States. It was basically, you know, the, the pineapple guy Dole that well part of him. So yeah. part of you know him and some others forced this to happen. And the Dole uh, thing, do you know that like? And when I was doing this research, I had no idea, which is awesome to know. Like, pineapple is not native to Hawaii. Yep. Not at all. This guy brought it in. And like, everyone, you know. And it just grows well there. Anything grows well in Hawaii. But yeah. But I think it's so, like, almost, like, terrible if you think of, like, Hawaiian pizza. Like, by putting um, pineapple on it. Pineapple is not. It's basically like a fruit of oppression as far as these guys are concerned. You know what I mean? So, it's an interesting story. So, I think we could uh, maybe get right into it. I guess when well, I, it becomes you want to start with more, Cook? yeah, the James Cook right lands there in 1778. Yep. Um, and again, you know, Hawaii existed long before us. So we're not saying it didn't exist just when the Europeans kind of started going there. Yes. So that's when real it's, it's a good jump off jumping off point for us to really yep. look at it and then discuss it because this is when other the European powers, I guess, and then the Americans and stuff that started to take more interest in it. And the Hawaiian monarchy was basically uh, a had a whole bunch of these rival factions and infighting. So mm-hmm. life, life on the islands was kind of this um, uneasy balance a lot of the times, right? Especially after this time with like wealthy Caucasian sugar plantation owners, immigrant farm workers and Native Hawaiians at the time, all the way up until 1898. It's one reason why the United States wanted to annex it too, is the idea if it became a state, all that kind of this infighting and uh, royal family and uh, sugar plantation barons and stuff that, he just kind of put an end to all that. Now you're a state, here's a governor, that's it. You know, so that was yeah. kind of part of it too. And um, we want also, you to grow our sugar, and well, since you're sugar, right yeah. in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and we want to dominate this area, uh, you'd be a perfect place for. Well, know, we had that a long right? time before, before yeah. you know, Pearl Harbor. That's something to be up Pearl Harbor, right? 1941 gets bombed. Alaska is um, Alaska. Hawaii's not a state then. No, nope. so it's like it's just a territory. So we and we we lease it from the Hawaiians. We lease Pearl Harbor because it's a natural harbor. Yep. Uh, absolutely, and like and like you mentioned, this whole thing really starts with Captain James Cook. He's a British explorer and navigator. He's credited as the first European discoverer of Hawaii. So he lands in Kauai on January twentieth, seventeen seventy eight. Um, he winds up coming back the following year, and he actually gets killed by a lo- bunch of local Hawaiians. They one of their boats gets destroyed, and then he winds up trying to kidnap one of the uh, monarchs uh, as like a you know, like a way to terrorize the locals and then the locals basically just kill them all. During this time, as Cook discovers, the British guy discovers Hawaii for the Europeans and other Europeans start coming in. Um, these Europeans start selling military technology and weapons to one particular Hawaiian leader, right? Do you, can you know how to pronounce it? It's King Kamehameha. Uh, King Kamehameha. Oh, dude, say that again. King Kamehameha. Nice. Yeah, yeah that king. Um, yes, exactly. So uh, he winds oh, yeah. up basically taking advantage of all this military technology and weapons, and he kind of trades it. It's like, all right, I'll let you guys use some of this land for sugar growing while you give me all these weapons. And he consolidates power um, as like the most powerful king on this set of islands. And for 85 years thereafter, he basically rules over Hawaiian kingdom. And that's when you also have Ameri- like Americans start getting involved in like mid 1800s, primarily because of whaling, right? They start stopping there because of their whaling fleets are wintering in Hawaii. 
and there's so many explorers and traders and adventurers that are trying to get these whales and oil and so on and so forth that you wind up having the Americans kind of taking more interest. And this is late 1700s up to mid 1800s. In 1820, you have the first 15 companies of these New England missionaries that arrive. And this is the beginning, really, of, of how Hawaii becomes American. You have these American missionaries that arrive in 1820, um, and they basically start building frame houses. They bring horse-drawn vehicles. They start building schools, churches, taverns. And they kind of create this mercantile establishment as well. Then, then even though they're here to spread Christianity, they kind of get involved in also making money in a sense of, again, sugar is the big one that's that's being brought in here. This is very similar to what ultimately happens when the colonists come to North America and settle in New England, because initially it was all about religion and, and uh, you know, freedom of religion. And ultimately it became all about shipping and business and, you know, uh, logging and whatnot in New England. And that's basically what happens here is that these initial missionaries uh, have kids and their kids have kids. And by then they're not really interested in missionary work. They're interested in the economy. They are, yeah. they see themselves no, as Hawaiians. Yeah. yeah. They're Hawaiians. They're white. You know, obviously they're come from America, their ancestors, but they're by 1800s, middle to late 1800s. They're like, well, white Hawaiians, we have money and we want Hawaii ultimately. Yeah. And what they basically forced the queen at the time, right? I guess we'll fast forward mm -hmm. a bit, right? Queen Lily um, Okalani, they, they forced her to sign something basically that becomes known as the Bayonet Constitution, right? Yep. Yep. I thought, I, was, she, it, was it her brother? I think they initially make her brother sign it and then she yeah, takes over. Yeah, her brother signed it. She signs yep. it. Yeah, she, well, she was the last queen. She's the last yep. queen. She's also forced yep. to sign it eventually too. They, yep. um, she had like a more legitimate claim, I believe, to, for, to the crown. So they're like, they're yep. like infighting. And um, it basically just, this is in 1894, it basically just establishes Stanford Dole, yes, you know, that Dole, the pineapple guy that we talked about before, as the yeah. first president of the Republic of Hawaii. Um, there was a brief effort to restore the marketing and the queen to the throne in 1895, but it pretty much ended. And then by 1898, there was all this um, nationalism, particularly there too, based on the Spanish-American War. William McKinley annexes Hawaii for the United States during this time, which basically just means we're incorporating it into our territory. They actually, as you mentioned, they used the Spanish-American War as the the as you know the impetus why. for this, the reason for it, because they're saying as after a while, what ultimately happens is the American uh, companies that uh, like Dole and all them. There's a lot of American companies that have almost like a hold over Hawaii that are controlling most of the Hawaiian lands. They basically take over, and like you said, they they take the queen, they put her under house arrest. Um, and they basically have her sign off, uh, you know, Hawaii. So that way they control these American companies that are led uh, oftentimes by descendants, descendants. Thank you. The descendants of these earlier missionaries basically seize control of the island. So it's not like the United States seizes control of the island. These are basically American companies, companies that yeah, seize it's not control. The United States, yeah. We don't, I'm. Get involved until the Spanish American War. Exactly. exactly. Then the Spanish American War is happening, and all of a sudden, you know, we also get Philippines and we get other areas around this time, and in these the Pacific, companies, yeah. yeah, in the Pacific, and these companies and the wealthy people that are controlling Hawaii are kind of reaching out to American congressmen and are like, "Hey, listen, you know, you kind of want Hawaii, you kind of want us to be part of the American territory for." 
national security and for the ability to really control the Pacific Ocean and as a stop for the Navy and so on and so forth. So they kind of convince President McKinley that Hawaii should be annexed by the United States. So people need to remember that there you have a queen. Uh, she is basically taking, you know, overthrown by American corporations that seize the lands and the control of the lands and then petition to the American government to become a territory, American territory, which is granted due to the fact that the Spanish-American War shows the necessity for having a naval base or a stop in the middle, because it really is, of the Pacific Ocean, which is what, what happens here. But this becomes a huge thing for America because, you know, now Americans are like, well, are we an imperialist nation? Uh, is this the right thing to do? And, yeah, and a lot of controversy. A lot of controversy. Because a lot of Americans also don't want to become a state because they think it's so far from yep. the mainland. They're like, how is that actually going to be a st- How is that going to become a state? So it remains a territory for obviously many, many years. It takes before it actually becomes a actual um, state. And it's basically tied in with, um, like we said before, it's going to be tied in with Alaska. So it's yeah. not until the Democrats pushed to make Alaska a state that it finally happened in Hawaii, uh, which always had a large military population after World War II and even to this day. My father was stationed yeah. there when he was in the Air Force many years back uh, for, for a number of years. You know, and it basically led to Republicans and they had like a balance of Senate seats. So that's when they finally decided to do this. So after Alaska was awarded statehood, so was Hawaii, which became the 50th state on August 21st, uh, 1959. Um, yeah. Even though it becomes a state, what's important to stress is that a lot of um, Hawaiians are not very happy about it. And the Native Hawaiians don't particularly, aren't exactly happy about it. And uh, there's a lot of like push basically towards this that like they say, like because there's still this sovereignty movement. Not so much, they know like, you know, they're not going to become their own nation. Um, but they want they want a lot of the, the um, indigenous people of Hawaii to be recognized and have their own like a lot of like how Native American tribes are. They want that same treatment for for themselves. And if you go yeah. to some of these other islands outside the Big Island, I know when I went there years ago, um, I was actually there for Fourth of July, and I was like, and I remember asking like the uh, people in the hotel, or whatever, like the major deal, like, oh, they're gonna have fireworks, and he's like, no, 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 you're not gonna have fireworks on this island. You know, yeah. that's, that doesn't that doesn't fly here. You know, they're not going to be celebrating Fourth of July here because there's still like a lot of resentment. They basically feel like the United States territory like illegally took over um, Hawaii yeah. and overthrew their rightful government and, you know, sovereign people and then forced themselves onto the Hawaiian island. There's other ones that say this, you know, it's, 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 it's benefit, it's, it, it benefits being part of the United yeah. States. You know, it's, you know, we'd rather be part of the United States and not part of the United States. You know, well, that's kind of the, the white, uh, so, yeah, the very white population of Hawaii um, pushed for statehood, mainly for the fact that they had they were obligated to pay U.S. taxes, uh, especially 1940s and stuff. As a U.S. territory, the population growth was really, you know, was growing in the 40s. Development of plantation economy based on production of sugar, pineapples for consumption in U.S. mainland basically um, saw it become a transport link to mainland United States. And people are going there. Economy's going great in the 40s. And the white population, they have to pay taxes, but they're like, well, we have no corresponding legislative representation. So like, yeah. why would I pay taxes? Which is why they are um, starting to, you know, the rich people are kind of like, yeah, bring us to make us a state, like make us have some form of representation if we have to pay these taxes. It's kind of really right after World War II is you have this further economic consolidation and growth is what really leads to this path to statehood like no 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 like if we have a pretty good economy you're taxing us make us a state and plus right. and a lot of the import taxes and stuff that piece a lot yep. of stuff gets brought there that's why you know that um, certain things are cheap in hawaii but certain things are much more expensive 
um, believe yep. it or not. And Hawaii is the only state in the country that actually grows coffee. If you think about how much coffee Americans drink, Hawaii is the only state that actually grows its own coffee. And they have a bunch of different types too there, but mostly because of the uh, volcanic soils. They're so rich in nutrients and stuff like that. They can grow yeah. coffee there. But you would think, that's always a trivia question I ask students the first couple of weeks of school. You know, what's the, and they all, they all, they all think about it. They never get it until... I yeah, tell them it's something that you, you don't you don't think of Hawaii being the only one there. Doing it. Yeah, and kind of like what you're saying too, like and you were there Fourth of July, like since 1980s, you have this sovereignty movement that is yeah. getting bigger and bigger. You know, it's like legal restoration of sovereignty. You know, these guys, these native it's, Hawaiians. Yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's not anti-American. It's not that. It's more just pro-Hawaiian. Yeah, which I understand. You, yeah, you should understand. You know, because a lot of them, a lot of they're sort of like you know they're relegated they're relegated to like just this um. Like leisure culture, you know, like yeah. type of thing. Like they have to work in these resorts or they have to work, you know, these, and it's just, it's not fair because they're working for these corporations basically to, you know, pave not always great and stuff like that. Like it's, it's weird. It's different. Yeah. And now, I mean, now tourism is the most dominant industry oh, easily. Yeah, of Hawaii. Exactly. Right. That's yeah, a huge. Uh, it's, yeah. It's not just the climate. Um, work, you know, you have world class resorts and so on and so forth, but you also have the national parks and, uh, I mean, it's it's also a major world center for astronomy. I mean, there is, yeah. uh, you know, this is the place to go. Um, in 1993, we should mention, United States President Bill Clinton apologized for America's role in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. He said, uh, our bad. Interesting. He's, he says that for a few things in, yeah. during his presidency, um, which is fine. But yeah, again, you see he's apologizing for it. Somebody's not like he's going to be like, we're going to make it right and there you go. You're not a state yeah. anymore. Like that, that was never going to be entertained. Nor I don't think you know people would ever would want that. The whole yeah. would want that. Um, like I said, we do have those people, uh, individuals that saw a movement, but it's more pro Hawaiian and pro Hawaiian history, and they want to be recognized as an indigenous people, not wards of a state, um, and more than just uh, being an independent country. They're more than being anti-American. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of covers right our 49th and 50th state acquisitions yeah, cool places cool places i've cool been to places. one i still have to go to the other i know i haven't been to either no, but i'm going to one more. next summer we already booked stuff yeah. so this is how oh, there you go that's what it's yeah. always um it's always something to look forward to you know after a whole entire year of teaching uh, be helpful be helpful that's right anyway so thank you so much everyone for listening to our podcast as always we greatly appreciate it if you need to find us you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com if you have any questions Twitter. comments yeah, you could also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You could just Google us and our website will pop up. We do it. It's out there. Yeah. It's We're out there. there. Thank you so much again, guys, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, 
all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.